I'm Anna Rothschild, and you're listening to Podcast 19 from 538. Today on the show, we're doing a deep dive into long COVID, which is when people who've survived COVID-19 continue to experience a variety of symptoms for weeks, sometimes months, after their acute illness. What's causing this illness to linger for so many? And what will happen to our healthcare system if so many people are sick with a hard-to-define illness for years to come? Our producer, Sinduja Srinivasan, has been looking into these questions and brings us this story. I just simply can't, can't work. Even holding up an iPhone feels like too much effort. It feels like you, there's this uh, limb heaviness that occurs. It's like moving anything against gravity just seems to be too, too much. That's Dr. Mady Hornig. I'm a, a physician scientist at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. In April, Dr. Hornig was writing grants to study COVID-19. Ironically, that's most likely when she contracted the disease herself. My first suspicion was when I developed a fever suddenly at four o'clock in the morning on April 24th. And uh, that fever lasted for 12 days. After about four weeks, the first wave of illness ran its course. Uh, I felt better for a brief period. I really felt relatively normal. But then, just a week later... Then I started to have a severe tachycardia episode. It feels like your chest is pounding. My pulse rate would suddenly shoot up to maybe 130, 135. And then the muscles in her neck started vibrating. It was so uncomfortable that she asked her son to put his fingers on her neck to see if he could feel anything. Indeed did feel it jumped away and, you know, it described it as uh, sort of the flight of the dying humming, the dying baby hummingbird. <laughs> it's very descriptive. And it wasn't only muscle spasms. So I have terrible itching, like the most intense itching where you feel like you would be delighted if somebody would just cut your finger off. I mean, I know that sounds bizarre, but it's just, it's so distracting. Before getting infected with this coronavirus, Dr. Hornig would routinely work for 14 hours straight. Now, seven months after she first contracted COVID-19, she still has trouble making it through the day. I feel like everything goes at once. My body energy and my brain energy just disappear. I can't go any further. And I've done better with managing that with what I call the toddler schedule. I, you know, sort of, although I feel like having a tantrum, I have proactively put myself on at least two rest periods every day, whether I want to or not. I just put myself into lie down mode with my legs up above my heart. All those different symptoms that Dr. Hornig has had, the exhaustion, the pounding heart, even the muscle spasms, and the fact that she's had them for such a long time, that's all consistent with what we know so far about long COVID. But having such a wide variety of symptoms is problematic for diagnosing it because it means... There are no official criteria yet. Dr. Aluko Hope is an associate professor specializing in critical care at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I also work in a COVID recovery engagement clinic. Based on what he's seen... 
Dr. Hope has identified different types of patients recovering from COVID. The first group is people who were severely ill and are facing recovery challenges. Challenges that we've actually seen in most patients who are recovering from a severe illness that needed life support. So things like fatigue, memory fog, physical impairment, cognitive impairment, those are things that we've characterized quite well in survivors of any severe illness. Then there's a second group who were mildly ill, but their recovery has been really difficult. And their symptoms are relapsing and remitting and protracted enough. We don't know what's going on there. It may be some changes in their immune system that may have occurred as a result of the virus. Um, it could be, for example, a reactivation of, an, of a prior virus or that COVID really is chronically in the system for a while. And so really it's a hodgepodge. And I think the scientific mystery is that second group, the people for whom we are pretty clear that these are not people who would have had a protracted recovery challenge, and yet they're having new symptoms that are relapsing and remitting. Although that second group of COVID patients is currently a medical mystery, doctors have known for decades that some patients can experience what's known as post-viral syndrome. In fact, Dr. Hornig said that survivors have reported long-lasting symptoms with other viruses. It was reported with SARS-1, um, it was reported with Ebola. Even in SARS-1, there were many individuals who had a host of symptoms that are really overlapping with the types of symptoms that individuals are describing now. There were even post-viral symptoms reported after the 1918 flu pandemic, although scientists aren't sure if the flu caused them or it was something else. And those post-viral symptoms that SARS survivors described, they sound pretty familiar. Fatigue, uh, shortness of breath, um, some of the persistent neurologic symptoms. Dr. Allison Morris is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Obviously, in, in that outbreak, there were far fewer patients. That's true, but it's also the best comparison we've got to long COVID. Research on SARS finds that some survivors exhibit post-viral symptoms years after recovering from the acute illness. One study followed over 150 SARS survivors. Three and a half years after the epidemic, over 40% of them had exhibited signs of psychiatric illnesses, mostly post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Some of the symptoms COVID-19 survivors describe such as trouble sleeping or concentrating, are also associated with PTSD and depression. Could there be an overlap between long COVID and PTSD? It, it certainly could, and it's very hard to tease that out from, as you say, what's happening on a global level. Lots of people who didn't have COVID are having those symptoms now. Uh, it's also exacerbated by the fact that when these people are in the hospital, often they're isolated from their loved ones. You know, their caregivers are wearing all the protective equipment and there's less of the interpersonal contact that people would have even when they're sick in the hospital. Another SARS study followed about 70 survivors and found that 15 years later, about 40% of them still had reduced lung capacity. Could we see similar trends with this coronavirus? Will long COVID be forever COVID? According to Dr. Morris, it's entirely possible. There are you know, three different trajectories that people can take. Deficits may improve over time and completely resolve. Uh, they may remain stable where they are and people don't progress. 
or they may, as you say, worsen and stay um, long-term. And right now we don't know who is going to go down each of those trajectories and how to predict that. And that brings us to the main crux of the issue. How can we find out what's causing long COVID? What we want to do uh, as a research community is get data and biological specimens from patients who have had COVID across the spectrum. So people who have been hospitalized, ranging all the way to people who have been asymptomatic. Um, So we can then start to look who are the patients who are getting these symptoms, what are their risk factors, are there biological markers that we can look at that uh, will predict who's going to have a problem and will help tell us what that problem is from. Well, Dr. Morris, meet Dr. Michael Peluso, an infectious disease physician at the University of California, San Francisco. And it just so happens he's the clinical lead for a study called LINK. Which stands for Long-Term Impact of Infection with Novel Coronavirus. Currently, about 200 people are enrolled in Dr. Peluso's study. So the goal right now is to see every participant about every four months for up to two years. So we're studying um, patients who have recovered from COVID, including a substantial proportion of patients who are experiencing prolonged symptoms. Participants not only describe the progression of their illness, but they also provide samples like blood and saliva. So the scientists can study the biology of long COVID and understanding the biology of long COVID is really important. You know, if there is a biological or immunological process underlying the syndrome that could be identified, that will serve as a potential target for therapeutic interventions. And so if we can identify a pathway that's happening in somebody's body that causes this issue, we can then begin to think about whether there is an existing treatment that could intervene on that pathway or whether we in collaboration with drug companies can, can develop a treatment that specifically targets that. It's still too soon to know whether that will be possible, but I think that that would be the ultimate goal. Dr. Peluso is still in the early phases of this research. After all, we don't even know yet how many people experience long COVID. So we're not even at the point where we have um, a consensus case definition, which I think is going to be the first step to answering the question about how common this is. Um, so I don't, know, I don't know how common it is, and I don't think a- anybody knows how common it is right now, but even if it's 1% of people who have had COVID, there have been over 8 million COVID diagnoses in the United States, and there have been over 32 million COVID diagnoses worldwide. That's millions and millions of people who have recovered from COVID. So even if the proportion of people who go on to have persistent symptoms is small, the absolute numbers are going to be quite large. In the U.S., we've actually now passed 10 million cases. And some scientists think as many as 10% of the people who've recovered from COVID-19 could exhibit long COVID symptoms. So that could mean one million people might need long-term care. We've already seen our hospitals overrun by acute COVID. Can our healthcare system handle an influx of thousands of chronically ill patients? We know we knew before COVID that we need to increase the capacity of our healthcare system. I think that COVID will be a wake-up call in that 
I imagine that many people who get COVID will not have previously engaged a lot with the healthcare system. And so all of those people will need to be connected to care. Dr. Morris is also worried about our capacity to support long COVID patients. It will certainly be a strain uh, on the healthcare system. This represents a whole new segment of patients in the population who may have chronic uh, long, hard neurologic, psychiatric uh, issues that the health system will have to deal with. We, are, we could certainly see bottlenecks for things like pulmonary, cardiology, uh, psychiatry, neurology, um, particularly now when bringing people in in person uh, is more difficult and doing some of the testing that we would normally do to evaluate what some of the, where some of these deficits are coming from uh, is limited. One of those SARS studies we talked about earlier also looked at employment outcomes in addition to health outcomes. It found that out of 55 patients who had recovered from SARS, about 20% still had not returned to work two years after their illness. At the beginning of this, outcomes from COVID were binary. It was survived or died. And we were trying to put as many people into the survived category as we possibly could. But not all survival is created equal. And I think it's really important to evaluate what people's quality of life is like after they've recovered from COVID, um, what their ability to return to their prior health baseline is after they recover from COVID, and then also, you know, what their ability is to re-engage with their their work um, or their household responsibilities and get back to their their normal life. Normal life, whatever that means. We heard at the beginning of the episode that while Dr. Hornig has been able to keep her job, she's had to reduce her hours. What about the people who don't have that option? Dr. Hornig suggests a legislative initiative to ensure that there were requirements for businesses, you know, that there's a need to allow for flexible working scenarios. We may be a long way from that. Between 2008 and 2017, only about a third of the applications for disability benefits were actually approved, according to the Social Security Administration. To receive benefits, the SSA requires that applicants provide objective medical evidence of an impairment. Since there's no official diagnosis of long COVID, that could mean a lot of people who need disability benefits might not actually get them. In the United States, we're in the middle of a third wave of this coronavirus. Even if we get a vaccine, even if there is a miracle drug, thousands of people might still be dealing with the aftermath of this virus for decades. How we treat them will be up to all of us. Many thanks to Sindhuja Srinivasan for bringing us this story. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sindhuja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. See you next time.